Welcome, after a long hiatus, to another episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. Uh, Matt and I are back. Uh, we told you all early on, if you're a devout listener, that there would be times where our lives would basically come crashing down and we would be able to record. And it seems like October 2022 was absolutely that time. So we did actually have a recording uh, with Chris Painshab of Badlands Herpticulture. We did it a week or week and a half ago, um, but unfortunately the, uh, the, the audio didn't save. So we tried, um, but it wasn't meant to be. So today it's just Matt and I, um, and we're going to be giving you all updates on what's happened in our worlds. We're also going to talk about how we prep for brumation, and then we'll talk about a little project we have in the works. So howdy how, Matt? How's it going? Oh, man, it's going, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, it Just is. Just trying to catch up on sleep at this point. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, you started the week in Maryland, then late in the work week you got back home, went to Green Bay, and then you've gone from Green Bay back home to Indy, and that's where you're sitting now, and this is in a seven-day window. Is that correct? So less than seven days. Than so seven. left to Baltimore, Maryland on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Flew into Chicago on Thursday, went to Manitowoc, uh, Wisconsin, and Green Bay, and then uh, one other location in Wisconsin, too, and drove back to Indy yesterday with four to five inches of snow waiting for me. Nice. So we're not making this stuff up, guys. (laughs) We we, we are all (laughs) over the place. I was in Florida this time last week, and then one week before that, I was in South Carolina. And then two weeks before that, I was at Tinley. Um, So first Tinley show, by the way, that was cool. Um, But yeah, but we're hoping, knock on wood, to get back into a somewhat normal routine of recording. Uh, So um, we have obviously had quite a... A bit of time's gone by. I think it's been about a month uh, with our respective collections. As far as mine's concerned, all that's really been going down is um, prepping for the great white winter that happens in West Virginia. So I've been feeding things uh, pretty heavy the past month and a half. I had a couple ladies on the kingsnake front that needed to put on some weight. Uh, One of my big false water cobras needed to put on some weight. So I have been basically, for lack of a better word, cycle feeding the, about half the colubrids. And then the other half of the colubrids just been doing the normal fall feeding thing. Um, and my goal, I'm a little late in shutting everybody down uh, because of that crazy work schedule. So my goal is to have everybody's last meals fed out, I think, end of next week. Because um, I need to push things and have a little bit of a... You know, Brumation lasts a little longer in the winter because I have some travel I already know I'm going to be having in the middle of March, and uh, I don't want things to be warming up until after that. So that's kind of where I am at. Um, All the babies are out, which is good. Uh, The holdbacks are growing and eating, which is good. Haven't really gotten anything new other than a couple king snakes, and um, yeah, that's all I have. So it's going down with your collection as of the recent present. (laughs) <laughs> oh, man. Well, as of this morning, so November 13th, uh, pulled out some Molendorfi that we're starting to hatch. So that's always exciting because nice. I, I haven't hatched them in the last couple of years just because of moving and 
and trying to get animals settled into a new environment. Um, so Mullendorfi were hatching. Mandarins have been hatching and have started to feed. And the last clutch um, in the incubator is red and black striped snakes. Nice. Um, so that'll be fun mm-hmm. to hatch out some more of those. Um, in terms of new additions, uh, Stan Grumbeck and I, we we exchange a box each year um, just between mm-hmm. each other's collections. So ended up um, picking up some black-tailed Kribos. Very cool. Um, and, some blo- and some blotched king snakes. Mm-hmm. Um why I need king snakes, I don't know. <laughs> Probably need that, like a bullet in the end. But uh, fun snakes mm-hmm. and uh, very interesting to watch in terms of um, handling. I, I haven't had those in probably, whew, probably like 10 or 15 years. I really? Mean, it's been a long time coming. So, you know, it's kind of cool to sometimes pick up some of those reminiscent animals for your collection. Um, even though they might not add any value in terms of what I'm currently keeping, I think sometimes it's fun to add those animals to your collection just as, um, you know, hobby sake or even thinking about the past of where you've come mm-hmm. and where you're going. No, I agree 100%. Um, actually, speaking of that, uh, I did something similar. I, I've i had a 4x2x2 by two by two PVC Viv in this office where I record empty for a bit of time. And I the, the, the Vivs that are in here, I do... They're all naturalistic and bioactive and all that kind of happy hoopla. And I've always just... I, I kept thinking back to when I was in college and I had um, Amazon tree boas. Not a colubrid, obviously, but still. They, they they tick all the boxes for a Zach Lofman snake because they're aggressive and want to eat your face when you try to interact with them. Uh, but they also have been doing a little bit of this... Well, I've been doing this naturalistic thing for a little while and I thought, they'd be pretty cool in a setup so i found a pair that was a good price and i bought them and fun fact amazon tree bows are very skinny and my son helped me set them up in their quarantine viv not the one here and i think we had them for about two hours before both of them escaped um because colin pushed the glass too hard and it like bounced back about a centimeter and they came out (laughs) <laughs> overnight so i just shut the room down and i got to go herping in their spare bedroom and sure enough there they were just staring right back at me after about an hour and a half so that was cool but now they're in there locked t- good and tight and yeah good but th- that's a nostalgia snake for me so i pretty much do the exact same thing i think it's important to do yeah that. i think it's always fun mm-hmm. i mean especially you know when you keep large collections and things like that i think sometimes we get too caught up relative of you know monetary gain um some of the different aspects of that too as well and we lose track of you know those personal projects or where we've come and where we've gone um and i think sometimes adding those animals really kind of reminisce things of that i mean that's part of the reason why i'll never get rid of porphyracea from my collection mm-hmm. just because i mean those were really the establishing species for sarpometra going forward yeah i mean it's your logo man you, you have to keep it i know <laughs> can't lose exactly it. You have to get a new logo <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, I can say that that's a good choice of a king snake because, as you know, I've completely gone off the deep end with Getula, Getulus, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I can honestly say that the the two that I am most enamored with, uh, three, I guess, they're all kind of tied. Are the Florida King locality stuff I like, and then along those lines, the whole 
Is it going eye? Is it means eye? Is it neither of the above, like the taxonomy of the Blotch Kings, Apalachicolas, whatever the hell you want to call them? Pretty cool. And yeah, do you know if they've got any kind of locality info with them, or are they straightforward Blotch Kings? I'm going to say that these are 100% hobby. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> very cool. Very, very um, cool. What's interesting is Stan picked these up at a show. Ooh, the original parents, probably about 10 years ago. Holy crap. Um, and he picked them up just purely because of the fact he, he wanted to add them again because he had them in the past mm-hmm. and just wanted to keep them again. And, I mean, at that point in time, I mean, they were basically like a $20 animal. Yep. Um, so it makes you, you know, reminisce about things like that, right? I mean, it's just, it's it's not about money. It's about the animals. Mm-hmm. It's about keeping things, progressing things. Because nowadays, you hardly ever see block yeah. games either. And they're, so it's really hard to get that kind of classic Apalachicola look. Uh, there, there's morphs now. Um, there's the whole Liberty County Means Eye and the patternless which seems to be means eye if means eye is a thing. Um, interesting little note for people listening. I have yet to see a completely patternless Liberty County female means eye, if we want to go with that. The males, seen half a dozen to a dozen. I have one, two. I'm looking at three of them right now. Um, but I cannot find a 100% patternless female means I, which is kind of nuts. And I, when I was at the Pit Viper conference over the summer, uh, Bruce Means, who's the guy that basically found means I back in the 60s and collected them, I got to sit down with him and talk about the animal. He didn't describe it. It was named in honor of him. And he was saying how uh, he rarely sees the, the patternless phenotype when he's out in the field. Well, well it's damn near impossible to find them anyway because their habitat's been completely demolished um, where they occur. But he, w- I, I, I asked him, like, back in the day, did you see patternless females? And he was like, no, not that often. The, the females usually had a bit of pattern to them. So kind of an interesting observation with that animal. I could actually talk about that snake for about two hours. <laughs> Easy. And, you know... <laughs> Like I said, doesn't matter what the value is. It's just a really cool zoogeography um, biology story, and that's why I really like those guys. So anyway, but we'll we'll bring this thing back to back to the path, I guess. Get out of this king snake talk. So um, yeah, well, I mean that's a big part. I mean we've talked about locality several times on on these episodes, and I think it really kind of brings into a different aspect of that. I mean it ties in so many different. Um, personal stories it brings up so much in terms of temperatures climate um you know geography Mm -hmm. in terms of the biome of that area and those are you know when you start to look at locality specific animals it's not really necessarily adding value to the animals it's more or less bringing the history of the animal into the connection yes um and you know keeping those kind of animals pure to that nature you know, when you start to interbreed or um, different localities with one another, sometimes you can actually create some issues for yourself because, you know, naturally those animals might be feeding at a certain season. They might be uh, predating on certain um, 
feed or uh, types of those aspects of it too as well. And then when you cross some of that, you're kind of creating something in, in the hobby that may not feed associatedly yes. to that point. One so. of the That's a great point. One of the things that's been really cool about this fall is this time last year I had acquired about 70% of the, the kings that live at the house here. And then over the past year, um, I, I, I literally I made a spreadsheet of everything I wanted to get and somehow have managed to get it all, which is nuts. Um, and I have all the uh, subspecies of king snake in the Getulus group here, except for um, Nigra, and, because Nigra is a native phenotype, and they're found all throughout West Virginia, and our regs say that you can't keep them. And then with Getula... Um, I have locality animals that don't match the phenotype of what's in West Virginia. So I, I'm, there's some gray area there, and I'm maximizing it. We'll just leave it at that. And what's been really interesting is as fall has come, and this has been like the first year we've had a fall, I would argue, in like the past five. Like it got cool. It stayed cool. We had warm weather about a week ago, which is funny because the Midwest has, like you said, snow. Um, but having all those different sim animals that were all part of the same complex, it was really interesting to see how the Florida Kings never shut off. Like they have been pounding whatever food I put in their enclosures, no matter what temperature it is. Um, but the Easterns uh, and the Holbrook eye, the speckleds and the Splendida, uh, the deserts right around the end of September, all of them across the board just shut down. Like, they aren't eating. The Californias are still kind of eating. But, you know, one of the fun things about doing this is that you, you kind of have that, oh, God, they're not eating. And then if you take a step back and use your brain and critically think about what the hell's going on, it makes complete sense that the Getchelas, which live in a more temperate place, as soon as they feel that trigger of winter's coming, shut down. And then the Splendida, even though they live in the desert, the part of the desert they live in, where mine came from, has a winter they shut down. These South Florida king snakes, it really don't they don't have what constitutes a true winter. And this time of year, they're still active. They're still pounding food. So that like evolutionary legacy of where they came from and those kind of innate behaviors, it's still ingrained in them. And um keeping the locality stuff's been kind of fun because when things go horribly wrong, I, I find myself going not necessarily I mean there's always that initial like panic and not horribly wrong that was too dramatic just wrong it's not eating its mouse for two weeks if you take that step back think about it you can kind of explain away which was interesting um and and i fed everybody yesterday and i offered them food but yeah they're if they don't want them now i don't care you don't have to eat it the outer banks king snakes same thing um my army of those they all pretty much took their last meal the first week of october and haven't shown any interest in food since then so, yeah, I mean, it, it really does have a big part, you know, when we, you start to look at stuff and especially depending how many generations the animals mm -hmm. have been bred in captivity, that plays a huge role in how much locality actually has, you know, participation in terms of how animals are feeding, how they're cycling, because there's a lot to learn from all of that. Yeah. One hundred percent. So. Do we want to talk a little bit about our project that we're endeavoring on? 
Well, Zach, you know, to be honest with you, I was wondering what the heck we're going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> since we don't have a guest mm-hmm. on, um, but obviously, you know, we didn't want to leave too much of a gap in between recordings. Yeah. Um, so, I think we kind of talk about what we're doing, just as a generality, um, and, and how we're tying in herpticulture with the private academic sector, too, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's also kind of a, a good place, too, as well, to talk about how we're actually funding something. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, when was that? A, a year ago? Yeah, yeah probably about a year, and, year, and, a half, year and a half. Somewhere in there. Um, we're not, well, well, before we go any further, we're going to keep it a little bit of a secret. So, we're not going to tell you what group... Or species complex. We're just going to leave this with Asian rat snakes. So, uh, we all Kevin Messenger, who wrote the, the recent rat snake book that was published through uh, Amazon, and was it Lulu or where you get the hardback copy of it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt and I both know Kevin. Kevin reached out to Matt because he was writing a book on Asiatic rat snakes, and if you think about Asiatic rat snakes, you think about Matt, and that's pretty much the way that went down. Is that fair? That's a good Yeah, comment. okay. <laughs> and then I know Kevin because uh, he entered the Marshall Herpetology Lab one generation after me. So when you go to grad school and you're in a research lab, it's kind of fun. Um, you usually will enter in the fall, and then it takes you two years, three years, however many years to get done with your degree. And the students you enter represent your cohort or your generation, uh, and and so it's always kind of interesting because you think back about your time in the lab and you know the people that were there during, in my case, the two years that I was at Marshall. Um, and then obviously there's kind of a camaraderie and an alum, alumnus kind of attitude. Like you, you help the people who come in after you. And I met Kevin for the first time in a swamp uh in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which is where Mothman hails from, if you know of Mothman, uh, because Kevin wanted to get pictures of smallmouth salamanders, and that's a super rare salamander in West Virginia. And I had found them while I was out. Well, I was actually looking for the salamanders, and that led to the crayfish thing, but that's a whole other discussion. So I've known Kevin since 2006, I think, and we've communicated back and forth. Um, but Kevin obviously has become the guy when it comes to Chinese snakes. And when he was writing the Asiatic rat snake book, um, he realized that some of those complexes needed a bit, little bit of love taxonomically. And he also realized that there are definitely scientists working on those animals, but uh, the work that's being done is being done few and far between. And... I think I don't know. Was it you or was it Kevin that initially proposed the idea, or both of you kind of serendipitously? I, I think it's one of those spitball yes. ideas where, mm-hmm. like, you start talking and you just start spitting stuff up against the wall, just trying to see what sticks. Yes. And and both of them knew that I had done a bit of taxonomy in my day, nothing with reptiles and amphibians, uh, everything with crayfish, but definitely understand the process of of elevating or relegating species, um, synonymizing species, describing species, all that kind of good stuff. And so we kind of put forth this idea of maybe we should kind of join forces and tackle an Asiatic rat snake or two that might be low-hanging fruit taxonomically. 
And then this all happened, I believe, pre-pandemic or right when the pandemic was starting. I don't remember exactly. Maybe it was post-pandemic. I think right when, I think it's like six months in. Yes, that's right. Because I remember when we had our first Zoom call, the conversation was, oh, this thing's going to go away. We'll be back to normal in a you know, in the fall, and yeah, we we're just now getting back to whatever the hell normal is. Probably this fall, so it got tabled for a little bit. Our idea, and subsequently, podcast happened. Matt and I got to know each other more. Um, I've been working with Kevin. I used Kevin to get a bunch of pictures of Pseudo Xenodon for the book that I'm writing, and obviously, have been in communication with him about Hognose Snakes too. Uh, and so, we basically got the idea of what if we used herpetoculture to fund some herpetology which would be cool because in some circles herpetology and herpetoculture make good bedfellows and in other circles they just don't and this is kind of our way of making the latter or sorry making you know the relationship be a little bit more positive so that's kind of what we're throwing around the idea of so matt why don't you tell peeps a little bit about how we're funding the research because this is pretty cool and it is for the record he's not going to give himself credit um this is matt's brainchild and it's kind of awesome so yeah so part of this was to kind of look at you know respectively how could we actually tie these two together as zach just mentioned and with the number of inquiries i've received in terms of signed copies of kevin's um authorship i asked kevin to print 20 final hard copy um, Asiatic rat snake books. So Kevin just received them as of today and he'll be signing them and sending them to me. I'll sign them and we'll be shipping those out to those people that had purchased them. This is going to be the last set of signed copies and these are going to be hard covered with glossy pages too as well. Um, So very different from what we offered initially. So for those that are collectors but also wanted something very different. Um, This was one of those means of that. But on top of that, I threw in another kicker of any porphyracea that were sold in this time period, and I'll likely continue this in the spring too as well, is that the funds from those animals would then be also contributed and transferred towards this research too as well. So kind of adding a little bit extra too is it, you know, donation if you will, but... um, Good faith is a better means of it to explore um, research in a different sector and different aspect of this to just kind of grow to herpeticulture. Yeah. And so when they get done raising the funds, the funds are going to be kicked over to West Lib. Um, I'm a research biologist there, so we already have plenty of accounts open that the money can drop into. And then what we're going to do at West Liberty is we're going to get some tissue from legally obtained animals. And basically, we're going to run the DNA that we need to to work on this group uh, and hopefully get some undergrads on it, which is important because this isn't just for us to do. We're trying to like pay it forward and teach some students about what it is to be a zoologist, a systematics biologist, you know, any or all of the above. And so... Uh, the funds that are raised from this will be going towards their projects. Those students can then use this as their capstone. We can, we have every intention of supporting the kids going to 
some herpetology conferences to present what they find. And then our ultimate goal, which we will see through to the end because both Matt and I are completionists and will not let this die, <laughs> is to um, take the results of the study and then hopefully write up a paper, get it through peer review, and get it published. So by completing that circle, we're using funds generated from herpetoculture, from the book sales, to then teach students how to do this kind of work, get them in the lab, um, and then take that to the meetings, present it, and then hopefully write a public a paper for publication, which is our ultimate outcome. Uh, we don't, you know, it's going to take a while. We'll give you all updates um, as it proceeds, but that's definitely something that's happening. So how many books were left, Matt? <laughs> so as of today, there are only five books left out of the 20 that were ordered. All right. And those went quick within about a week of being ordered. So if you're looking for a Christmas present um, or you're a collector, I would highly recommend contacting me to <laughs> order a book. There you go. And so our hope is to get the final set of books uh, sold soon. So if you're even remotely in the and, and if you don't have Kevin's book on Asiatic rat snakes for the love of God and you like Asiatic rat snakes, yeah, you need to get the book. Um, I think I I had I bought it. I have the hardback and I have the softback, and then Kevin sent me a copy. So I have three copies of this thing floating around my house. I have one at school, and then two of them are here and. I use it fairly frequently. Actually, it's a really good, fun book. So, um, by all means, give it a give this some consideration. Uh, so that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We'll give you all updates over time. So, yeah, especially if you get tired of waiting for me to respond on incubation temperatures or things of that nature. <laughs> um, I wrote most of the captive husbandry for this book, and those are all just from my experiences too as well yeah so highly recommend it there you go so that's our little project that we have brewing uh it it's kind of nice that it's gone from the back burner to the the front burner now um and we're we're rock and rolling and we have a molecular geneticist at my university who's really good at this kind of stuff who's also going to be helping her name's dr nicole garrison another one of my former students we have a tendency to hire our former students at West Lip. So uh, there is that. So, yeah, that's that. Anything else you want to say about that before we talk about prepping for brumation? No, I think it's just a very cool aspect of trying to bring in everything. And a lot of people have been asking about what is this funding? What is the project funding? Um, I think just bringing this out in terms of publicity of it, mm -hmm. I think this is a very cool way to tie in all these different sectors, but also to promote research. But even more so, I mean, when you're a student and you're trying to do research, funding is not easy to accomplish. No. And if, if we can actually tie something like this going forward into the future, I think there's a number of different projects and avenues of which we can actually help and grow in terms of uh, studies on animals that we love in the hobby and care about um, and, and learn a lot more about them. Uh, yeah, couldn't agree more. This was what I like about this is my goal when I got back into herpetoculture in 2016, especially because I was getting back in due to the zoo science major, uh, is that I didn't want to just necessarily – I wanted there to be an, a scholarly academic 
angle to the herpetoculture pursuits that I was pursuing. And this is kind of awesome that uh, this is a, a project that is going to do that. So it's it's always good to get a feather in the cap of herpetoculture that is positive. <laughs> and this could definitely be be it. It's it's a small feather, but it's still a feather, hopefully. And we like I said, we got to make it go to, through to the end and that's what we're going to do. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so kind of our project what you got. <laughs> Yeah, well, I I think it's now even kind of a, a good leading way to talk about what comes about this time of yes. year. Yes, prepping for the winter. So here's my spiel on that. We did the infamous, it is infamous, Brumation Bonanza episode where I did all the, the research from the literature and was like, you got to cool them, you got to cool them. And then we had... Four guests in a row say, yeah, don't cool my snakes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that has got me thinking a lot. Um, and so this year, I'm going to try a little mini experiment within my collection. Because I had one female I did not brewmate, a Florida King. And she laid a perfect clutch. And I, uh, most of the animals I dropped down that were Florida Kings did, did not go. So this year... I have intentions of not putting them into the infamous corner I talked about all winter where I can get them down to 50. Um, I've been playing around with Govies, and I think I'm just going to cut the thermostats in the garage, and the garage gets down to between 55 and 60. And um, I'm easy this year. It's going to be pretty easy for me because we're not making tons of snakes at West Liberty. Um uh, that project's now come and gone. It's just what I want to produce here at the he- the house. So my brumation is going to be very straightforward, other than some hognose snakes and rat snakes. I don't have anything overly fancy. Um, Japanese rat snakes, I guess, are kind of fancy. Um, not many things are going into that corner to get super cold. I'm going to let it, let things ride in the garage proper and just see what happens. Maybe I'll have more success. So. I know I put in the outline for today's episode. Let's talk about brumation. I think I just did. <laughs> I don't have that much going on. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, so so this is kind of um, unusual for me in terms of how I talk about it is because I also use this time also for cycling of certain animals mm-hmm. too as well. So, um, you know, there there are means of how you do this in terms of temperature, controlling, feeding. But typically what I do is I unplug all my thermostats mm-hmm. except for certain, you know, tropical species. Um, so I did that yesterday, actually, when I got back. And what I ended up doing was just unplugging everything. I don't ramp down thermostats because everything is in my basement. So right now it's about 74, 75 degrees in terms of temperature down there. And what will end up happening over these next couple of weeks is by pulling the thermostats from everyone is that room will start to slowly start to drop um, because there won't be any heat. In that uh, area. Gotcha. Um, and I'll open up a couple of um, areas to get some cold air into that room. And, a lot of people talk about getting animals super cold, um, but probably what will end up happening is it will go from 
you know, mid seventies to about 70. And then by mid December, it'll only be at about 61, 62 degrees. And from, you know, from some of the people that we've had on certain episodes and things of that nature, I do believe in light cycling. Um, so I will not have any lights on in that respective room. And from that, what you'll start to notice is animals will start to just kind of shut down for the respective winter. Um, and I'll, I'll keep that from Thanksgiving upwards to probably first week of March, give or take. And during that time, you know, lights will not be on. Um, if I do turn on lights, it's probably just to do some sort of maintenance within the area mm-hmm. or... Um, which I still find very important, and Zach, you you agree now, is doing water changes yes. inside of cages because you never mm-hmm. know what will happen. Um, but you know, fresh water is still a very important part of all of this. You know, spot cleaning things of that nature because animals are still going to actually um, go through that cycle, right? Because they're still emptying their their systems out here for the winter. Um, but I won't do any feedings um, or anything of that nature. And I'll keep them down for that time period, um, you know. And like I said, it will only get into the low 60s for my room. Um, but I think one of the biggest part is, you know, cycling the lights, making sure that it is in complete absence of light, um, but also the food cycling, right, yeah. by not having any feedings during those time periods. I mean, that's an important part of the bromation cycle. Even those people that we've had on that said, oh, I don't, I don't get them cold, they are still doing some sort of light cycling or feeding cycle yes. too as well. Yeah, I did a lot of feeding cycling this go-round. Kept a notebook just in case it works for next year. If it doesn't work, I want to know what I did. Uh, but um, interesting little note. I keep um, – I knew that things were – that there was a seasonal influence happening where I keep the animals because – uh, I've not seen this before. I know it's totally normal. Um, my son and I take care of the snakes in the garage. It's it's his chore is to scoop poop every Sunday with me in the racks, and then I run around and do all the like rando things. Like I had a thermostat that quit, and I had to fix it yesterday while he was in there, and it's bonding time while he's shoveling crap. You know, good parenting technique. I don't know. Anyway, uh, but Colin mentioned uh, that the the snakes, what the hell did he say? They were dancing. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And then I looked down, and where we keep the red-sided garters, uh, this was about a month ago, the males just totally trying to breed with females, which uh, garter snakes are well-known for doing autumnal breeding. But they 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 had not done that behavior. They weren't breeding... June, July, August. It wasn't until end of September, October. So, I, you know, I, I took that as a as a good sign that there are changes happening in the garage that are going to be leading to the animals, um, you know, picking those up and hopefully getting our hormone cascades that we talked about at great length in the brumation bonanza. Um, so I know that that's going down, which is good. But I don't have anybody else paired. Nobody's together. Uh, so we shall see. Um, we had a... The, the thing that brought you all the snow brought us a ton of rain. Uh, it was Tropical Storm Nicole. I don't know if that's what hit the Midwest or not, but I know that's what got us. Uh, and 
I thought, oh, pressure drop. Let me go check on those garters. And yeah, there's a lot of breeding going on there yesterday. Um, and all my male snakes, not all of them, but some of the male snakes that are the dipsadids, the male false water cobras were actively zooming around their PVCs. The females are right above them. Um, so, you know, there's definitely cues going on. So they know something's going down. So I'm cautiously optimistic that things are going to work. So, yeah, we'll go with that. Do you do anything well, else, though? Um, or is it just literally that simple? So I think, unfortunately, a lot of people overthink these aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. <laughs> I take find that power switch and I go click <laughs> and just turn them on. Um, but no, I mean, you know, respective of it, you know, you don't need to get these animals super cold. Um, if you do, great. I mean, they are very cold tolerant for most part. Um, I, in the past, I've gotten animals down to the low 30s. But is it necessary? I don't think so. Um, I also think when you do things like that, you can actually shock their immune systems by bringing them down to those extreme temperatures. Um, or, and you could also make them susceptible to other viruses when bringing them down that cold, right? Because their immune system isn't operating as it should. And then you bring in something of that nature and that's going to shock their system. Um, you know, I, I've heard from people with cooling animals that may not change water during that time period and they get mouth rot or mm-hmm. sepsis, um, in that area. Um, that's actually the reason why I'm very stringent on cleanliness in terms of water, um, even during the cooling time, is just you, you don't know. Um, you know, you could actually, I mean, water is notorious for building bacteria up, and if it's just sitting there stagnant, um, you are going to present that. And with that immune system being compromised, mm-hmm. if you will, if you think about it, I mean, it's not running at full. That's why even, too, when you're treating animals, typically they'll say bring the animal up to its higher temperature point. um, And it's just more or less to actually activate that immune system. Um, But other than that, that's about it. I think I'm going to try something different when bringing animals up this year. So not necessarily cooling. But I think I'm going to leave my males down an extra month. Um, And I say that because... I think once we get that follicular development, those animals are starting to move. I think sometimes by warming up males too soon, we're actually creating issues with sperm mm-hmm. um, too as well. And I'm going to try this this year. Um, I know some people that keep transpacos. Okay. Um, they, they do typically keep their males down cooler. Um, and, you know, if at the end of the day it works, it works. If not... You can call me a fool. But, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, but I think it's it, it might be something of interest. Um, you know, fertility in terms of reptilia, um, you know, there are some things that we don't know. Um, and I, I think it might be something just to experiment with and learn from off of that. So it'll be interesting to report, you know, coming June, July next year, whether or not that had any mm-hmm. sort of influence with the animals. Um, I'm also, this year... I. I don't know why I did this, but I noticed some of my animals were packing on a little bit more weight. Um, maybe they were hanging out with me a little too much. <laughs> um, but I didn't feed my animals as much this fall. And part of it was because I wanted them to burn off some calories too as well. 
And I'm curious, off of that avenue, what my spring will actually look like and seasonal growth. Because, you know, when you're outside field herping, you don't see very large animals. But you do see a lot of clutches. You do see all of that. And I'm wondering, too, and this could be twofold, is it the sperm? Is it the follicular development? Or do I just have fat animals? No, gotcha. Um, So... I'm just trying some different things, um, and I'm, I'm very curious to see how things will play out this upcoming year. You know, even within my collection, um, I've added some different species, but I've gotten rid of some species just because, personally, I do plan to spend a lot more time working on my mandarin rat snake projects. Um, cool. Because I still want to grow on that. Um, this year, too, I mean... I noticed I've been paying more close attention to the age of my animals and I've had to replace some animals this year just in terms of holdbacks and things like that. Um, I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? Especially when you're breeding animals that will start to create a toll on your respective collection. Um, So I ended up holding back a bunch more Japanese forest rat snakes too as well because I don't see many of those in private collections Mm -hmm. anymore. Um, you know, rhino rats, rain snakes, um, you know, a lot of things that are just personal projects to me. You know, I, I've wanted to hold back a little bit more. And then, I mean, I really like corn snakes, too. So I hold back a whole bunch of corns just to grow up and kind of just keep adding to that. Yeah. And I held back a whole bunch of tricolor hogs. <laughs> so hopefully the tricolor hogs that uh, you picked up yes. from Kevin. They're doing great, by the way. them are doing well. No. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Every time that one of those little, I love them before I go any further, but I also resent them because they eat. Every single <laughs> time I offer them a pinky, they eat, and I think about all the tricolor hogs I hatched that didn't eat. So when I was when I was writing the book, some I talked to a couple breeders for tricolors, and they all said there are definitely lines or. Uh, of animals that eat and there are lines that don't eat. And now I'm living the life and, and seeing it. And yeah, they're, they're little pigs, man. They, in fact, I, I lost track of feeding and I got, had an absent minded professor moment. It was like, Oh shit, I didn't feed them this week. And then I fed them. Well, I'd actually fed them like two days before. And the pink, we don't have small pinks at West Lib anymore. We've got big ones. Cause all of our neonates are bigger. And those things were like, they ate both of both snakes ate both pinkies and they were so damn fat that they couldn't wiggle. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> so I didn't feed them the next week and but yeah, no. How many of those did you make in t- 2022? Oh, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I lost track of it. Um I actually had a, a clutch of eggs go bad just recently in the incubator, which I was okay mm-hmm. with. Uh, so um but I mean, the fecundity on those animals is just insane. Yeah. Um, you know, and and then I I read through some of the different forums, and sometimes I I try to stop myself before I write, <laughs> or I start typing mm-hmm. something, and then I just delete it, um, because you know a lot of people say, well, these animals die early, they do this, and in back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, my animals are eight, nine years old now, and they're still cranking them out. Um, you know, but I, I really do think it's a lot of people just feeding inappropriately, yep. maybe not feeding uh, proper dietary 
Um, I do think there is a lot that has to do with lineage of animals and how that actually transpires to the long-term success of these animals. Um, so, in, I mean, we've had people on these episodes talk about tricolors, and I've never had any of the issues that other people have um, identified in terms of not feeding or being difficult feeders or rubbing fish juice yeah. all over them. Yeah. Where I'm like, nope, I, a couple drops of Dawn dish soap and we're good. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I really do think, um, you know, adding very successful or strong lines to your collection is a, is a very pivotal point, but man, I would say maybe like 200 animals. That's insane. Um, yeah. And I mean, I've, I've thrown away some eggs too, um, off that nature just because of nature of the fact. Yeah. No. But, um. Did yours? I mean, it's a lot of work when you get into it. I, I have a question about them stopping. So I know with tricolor hognose snakes, one of the issues is once they start going, it's to get the, the ladies to stop. And on the one hand, when you look at it through like a herpetoculture lens, you might start to think like, we've got to make them stop. They're going to burn themselves out. But in nature, there's a reason why that snake is pumping out eggs once a month eight or nine at a time and and obviously there's cues there that make them stop that may or may not be present in human care i don't know i've thought about this forever but did yours inevitably stop or is she still are they still dropping so i haven't been feeding as mm -hmm. strong with the tricolors and she hasn't laid well either female hasn't laid eggs in the last three months okay so I would say the food cues help, which, you know, if you were thinking in terms of a nature setting, when food is yep. prolific, you, you would be producing animals. You would be um, going through follicular development, mm -hmm. egg cycles, and by not feeding as much, the animals have slowed yes. down in terms of what they're actually Because what I've, I've given this a lot of thought, I don't know if this is in the book or not, but I definitely think about it all the time. And I think that one of the I, – I think that this is one of the, the – there's this idea that the zoo world talks about, and I love it. It's called folklore husbandry. Um, Robert Mendick, who's the curator at Audubon Zoo, wrote some really cool papers where he just full-on attacks both zoo and private herpetoculture and basically saying that a lot of our dogma that we do is – comes from the whole idea of well this is the way it's always been done i've always done it this way and it's worked therefore this is the way and that's not really the way that you progress anything it's a way that you keep things going but it doesn't necessarily lead to any kind of advancement because you kind of get stagnated and this whole idea with the tricolor hognose snakes and them burning themselves out um in nature those animals are eating ectotherms uh they're i could not i tried I tried, I tried, I tried to find any kind of record from nature of um, Pulcher, Semicinctus. Uh, there's another one. There's three of them, and I can't remember the other one off the top of my head. Eating a rodent. Couldn't do it. But I found plenty of records of them eating lizards, um, other squamate eggs, which was kind of interesting. They're egg eaters. Um, and then I found records of them, of course, eating amphibians. And if you do a deep dive into like calorilic intake and more importantly fat uh you will learn very quickly that there's nothing more fatty than a small mammal compared to 
lizards, amphibians, and squamate eggs. And it very well could be exactly what you said. I think a possible reason why the tricolors just keep going is that we feed them this diet that is loaded in both protein and fats, which then build up fat stores in their bodies. They then have that fat store, which is the product for vitellogenesis. Like, that's what they need to make eggs. They All the dipsadids are notorious for doing sperm retention. So you've got the sperm in there. And you create this kind of dynamic that's beautiful for a breeder, horrible for the individual, <laughs> where they've got the 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 fat stores and the extra protein and everything in their bodies to just make clutch after clutch after clutch after clutch because of us feeding them rodents. And if we segued them over to an all rodent or sorry, all amphibian sausage or fed them feeder geckos or fed them something where the biochemistry, what they're eating is very different. I don't know if they would necessarily um, produce as much. I think they would still multi-clutch, but I don't know if you would get six or seven or eight clutches of 10 eggs a time. Uh, so I think that might be a byproduct of us and the way that we keep them and not actually giving them a diet that's natural. Just food for thought. Oh, no, I agree 100% on it. Um, I mean, it's a big part of it. Um, and there's my... Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Um, but no, I, you know, it, it's interesting. And I think this is actually true amongst other species too. Um, rhino rat snakes, Kribos, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you look at, you know, those animals and how they're breeding and also in terms of some of the issues some people bring up, um, I mean, my Kribos, I feed them tilapia, I feed them chicken, mm-hmm. I feed them rodents, but I don't do a, a complete rodent diet of that I do offer some diversity in that nature. Yep. And and the reason why you're hearing the dogs barking is Cujo has a snake stuffed animal toy, uh, and they're fighting over the bottom. There you go. Um, but I think it's a important aspect, especially when we look at you know feeding some of these animals and how those things actually play a role. Um, you know, we, there probably is more to learn about husbandry than what we actually you know consider in terms of dietary intent yeah too well. no. and i think cooling them down and not feeding them you took away what ultimately led to them having the extra nourishment which then led to them not having the the uh, energy and the stores for vitalogenic activity and then it shut them down but i think that when they when they lay their eggs they look deflated so our our response is feed it so we feed them and then we're feeding them the high-protein, high-fat diet, which then causes their fat stores to bulk back up again. And then, biologically speaking, they've got the, the sperm storage. And if they were in nature, this is a boom year, so they're going to drop more eggs. Uh, and I do also agree with you. I think, I, I, I think the way we keep tricolors now is the reason why there's this idea that they are a short-lived snake. Um, I think if we kept them differently... And Roy uh, Blodgett, I'm sorry if I butchered your name, Roy. Um, <laughs> he uh, he he keeps. He wrote an article for the um, Herpetoculture Network's uh, Herpetoculture magazine, and I know that he feeds his animals a Reptilink diet. He doesn't. He tries to avoid rodents at all costs. And I've seen pictures of his snakes. Many of them are in the book, 
And if you just look at Roy's pictures of tricolors compared to other people's tricolors, they the physique of that animal is very different than the typical pulcher um, body plan. But no, th- this this species is one that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Uh, we've talked about it a bit, and after writing the chapter on them, I realized like people think that they're a hognose snake; they are not. A heterodon at all? They are a completely different beastie, uh, and I feel like they're kind. Of, they're 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 just waiting for somebody to do some pretty in depth work with to kind of show. We thought this, then we changed to we thought a. We changed our keeping to b, and then everything we thought about them is different. Like I really <laughs> think that that's an animal that that could go down with, which is why you know as herpetoculturalists, I think it's important that we think that way and try to advance what we're doing. I'm not trying to be hoity-toity here. I just think it's it, it it is way more rewarding when you keep something one way and then you try something different and it works and then you end up seeing your animals it doing better and their welfare increasing. That's what we should all be trying to do. And I will stand by that. I'm not going to back down on that state. No, I agree. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, that's that's really what we should be doing and striving for as hobbyists, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, is you you have to challenge, but you know, when you start thinking about this, I mean, there is so much in terms of science that we overlook mm-hmm. in terms of captive husbandry, and you know, we I think sometimes we simplify aspects to an avenue where we try to make it simpler um, just for ourselves, but there's so much more that goes on. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the reason why so many people, when you ship an animal, they go, this animal stopped feeding. Well, why did it stop feeding? Did you shock the animal, like, by changing in terms of its temperature? Are you keeping it properly? Are you stressing out the animal by offering it food every day, trying to make it eat the minute you just received it? Um, I mean, there's a number of avenues in this aspect that we overlook and try to simplify because it's not a dog. Yes, it's not a dog. That's for sure. No, no, and one of the things I did while we were away. This is kind of this is actually really cool. Um, I've talked a lot about my student pay, and their thesis is the thesis that is looking at the snake sausages for the indigo snakes. And we're working with uh, Central Florida Zoo's Orion Center for Indigo Conservation. There's a lot of words to unpack when you talk about that. And pay went down and spent the month of July working at the OCIC and working with an awesome vet. Um, that's the vet for central Florida zoos names, Dr. Bogan. I'm going to flat out say right now, uh, I've done a lot of podcasts talking about crypto and I think there's people that kind of view me as an authority on crypto. I do not view myself as an authority on crypto. I view myself as an educator on crypto. Bogan is the authority on crypto. Like he has done some really cool work with crypto in snakes um, he's got a bunch of really important publications coming out that are probably going to change the way people look at and treat crypto in the future. And I'll wait for those to come out. We'll talk about them then. But um, I hadn't actually been to OCIC. And they have 100-ish adult indigos. Uh, no, I think they have 50 to 60 adult indigos. And then these are the indigos they use for breeding to produce the stock that they release. And they do something at OCIC that is absolutely incredible as far as I'm concerned, which is they built outdoor snake enclosures, which 
You read about outdoor snake enclosures, you see pictures of outdoor snake enclosures, but I can honestly say that I have not had my mind blown, I mean really blown away, like like it was last Friday, I think that was our first day on site. Uh, they, they took what looked like a pole barn <laughs> and um, had to follow AZA uh, specs with you know double containment and all that kind of stuff. But they built a series of eight by ten foot, I think. I could be wrong on the dimensions. Enclosures that are that have you know, fencing so that you get natural sunlight coming into the enclosure. The OCIC center is right in the middle of Lake County, Florida, where there are wild indigos. So the snakes have everything they evolved for is right there. But they built these um, artificial burrows and. The burrows were crazy. They're, they have a keeper there named Stephen who had looked into the biology of the snakes. And they basically have a long burrow with an entrance that is not artificial. It's a basically looks like a little tunnel. And they took treks and built these boxes. But instead of building like – and I don't know how to explain this without a picture. They stacked the treks. So it, it creates kind of a, a, an area where you can get water leaking in there and the moisture and all that kind of stuff mimics what's going on in the gopher tortoise burrow. And then at the end of it, there's a piece of PVC. There's a PVC elbow that then leads to a great big Coleman cooler. So they can get into the burrow and get the snakes out without destroying everything. And that's was, was also part of it. But when I saw the snakes there, I thought, oh, my God, this is like the greatest – research set up on earth because you have these snakes that are living in like the the literal ultimate naturalistic enclosure because they're literally in nature like that's the outdoor enclosure and then i was talking to them about their keeping and then most of their breeders are kept in ars racks which is 30 feet to the left so we will absolutely be doing some theses coming up i talked to bogan about it he's all about it but we're going to look at like the ethology, the behavior of those snakes in those outdoor enclosures. See if they do the same kind of dial rhythms that wild indigos do, because that's been studied to death with radio telemetry and things like that. And then we're also going to be comparing them to the animals that are being kept in captive care uh, in the form of these these racks. And I don't want to I don't want people to think like they're keeping the the indigos in small tubs. They certainly are not doing that. I don't know the tub sizes for those but there's the tubs that are like five feet long and two feet deep and 10 inches tall with the windows like that's what the animals were being kept in but um what was awesome about that space though is this is a space where they they're doing this work they're producing indigo snakes it's herpetoculture in its finest moment as far as i'm concerned because it's literally breeding snakes to make more snakes and it is essentially a space that is completely devoid of the social media echo chamber. Like, they they, they just want to know what's the best thing to do to make as many indigos as possible and keep their breeders alive as long as possible. And working in that environment, kind of getting into this why we do what we do thing, um, it was really interesting because I was looking, uh, one of my grad students, Casey Cannon, who a lot of people will know, He's been on several podcasts. Um, he was down there with us. Uh, and it was fun because Casey would be like saying things like, well, in the private sector, we would never do this because of blah, blah, blah. And 
it wasn't impacting that place. Like, they were just literally doing whatever they thought was best for the snakes. And since Dr. Bogan's a vet, he's able to do blood draws and look at hormone levels and look at, you know, all these things that we can't normally do. So, um, absolutely going to be doing a lot of work there, but yeah, fantastic. And I know, I don't even know why I'm talking about this right now, but I felt like it had something to do with tricolor hognose snakes laying too many eggs. <laughs> so, <laughs> there we go. Um, but no, uh, really looking forward to getting back down there. And we did the blood draws for Pay's project to see the impact of her sausages, uh, which will be really cool. Um, because if that works, those sausages are something anybody could make. Like we buy all, we buy the sausage casings off of Amazon, and then we just simply go to a. It's not even really a specialty butcher. It's just a butcher that has. I think the the hardest to find item that we use in the sausages is alligator. Everything else is um, pork and rabbit. I think to get the profile of a snake. But no, super cool stuff. Really looking forward to seeing where all this stuff goes in the future. But yeah. We'll keep everybody updated. I'm going to try my damnedest to get Bogan on the podcast at least once. Um, and we'll see see what uh, whether we can make that happen or not. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the cool part, yeah. right? I mean, it's just, you know, there's a lot more to all of this that we can continually add and grow. Um, and, you know, going forward, there there's many aspects of the, the dietitian you know, I mean, when you really start to play it in, I mean, lighting, heating, food source. I mean, there's so much that mm-hmm. we just simplify in terms of our day to day, you know, and, and there's a lot of aspects, you know, that research, especially, you know, the amount of funding that would go into some of these projects. I, I don't think people realize how much it costs yeah. to actually fund some of these projects. Yeah. We have a an internal budget. If we did not have the internal budget, I would not be able to do anything. <laughs> because uh, Pay has tried to get some funding to support the work that they are doing, and it's been a struggle. Like the 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 proposal that Pay wrote is one. It is the tightest proposal any of my students have ever written. Like it's better than what I could write. And I uh, and it we, we throw it out into the ether and it just gets knocked down. Um, and it's not because it's bad science. It's not because the proposal's um, not working. It's because we're going up against people who want to fund diets for like African wild dogs and zoos and how to make gorillas have a better life in zoos. And if we're competing against that with a snake. We, we we have a really really we, we have a an uphill we have a hill to climb that is close to mountain probable so thank goodness we have the internal budget and I am super pumped about this particular project because w- one of the things I did last weekend which was it bothered me how satisfying it was is that we took meat cleavers and chopped up frozen rodents and chicks uh, <laughs> so. Um, and we turned those into a sausage too, because we needed to, to basically feed the snakes, the rodent diet, and then feed them the proposed augmented diet to see if there was a difference in vitamin A, vitamin E, vitamin, you know, 
not necessarily D, but all the different vitamin profiles, lipid profiles, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and just simply getting the, the, you know, these are basic results we're getting. This is nothing earth shattering, but seeing the difference in the blood chemistry when it comes in between the snakes that have been fed this augmented diet versus the all rodent diet, we'll, we'll finally have a little bit of an indication. Like what the hell happens when you feed a specialized snake species, things that are outside of its normal diet for a while, because the zoo feeds them rodents because where the hell are you going to get that many feeder snakes from? And then you've got disease issues to consider because you're literally bringing in snakes from outside. You'd have to culture your own feeder snakes, and that costs a ton of money. So, like, there's just all kinds of aspects of this project. I think that this project should have been funded many, many moons ago, and it, we still don't have a grant that has hit yet. We we do have our secret weapon waiting. There's a internal grant that I... I'm going to have pay apply for, and hopefully they get it, but we shall see how this works. So, but yeah, no, all good stuff. Um, so what else are we going to talk about? Cause I got one more thing. I, I want to give a book update. And other than that, <laughs> well, I, um, I did talk to Stan Grumbeck and Stan might actually be able to record, um, Potentially the week of Thanksgiving, Done. if possible. So we might be able to get a, a Molendorfi Oxyrophus episode to that as would well. be cool. Um, so because at this point in time, I think Stan's pretty much the only person in the United States, yes, uh, continuously breeding Oxyrophus. Um, and and you know, Stan has a ton of history. I mean, when you really look at you know herpetoculture and things of that nature, I mean, Stan's been at importers picked out Molendorfi has a lot of experience in that role. Um, and I think some of his keeping practices are very, um, atypical. Mm -hmm. So I think it will be very interesting to get in those conversations too, as well. But in terms of, you know, future gas and things of that nature, you know, for our listeners, I don't think everyone realizes how hard it is to, um, <laughs> Kind of negotiate, I think, is the best word. Yes. In terms of people's schedules, um, trying to get people on, because it can be challenging. You know, everyone right now is wearing multiple hats, and, you know, we, we love our listener base, but, you know, today, Zach and I just came on to talk because we wanted to make sure we kept up with everything yeah. and kind of give you an update. But, you know, as we continue on, I mean, we're, we're trying to get more people involved in this, and obviously, you know, don't be shy. Yeah, let it, let her know, rip, you, guys. You know so. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, because I think that's an important part of it. Yep. We, I think that we, I asked two people. You asked four people? Yeah. So we tried to get six different people on. Um, and, it, uh, and don't in any way, shape, or form, if you're one of those six people being like, oh, my God, he's calling us out. We're not calling you out. <laughs> we definitely had some people that will be on that just couldn't make it. Uh, but, no, we will gladly take it. I've had a lot of people – I've had at least four people in the past month reach out about Spiloides, um, tiger rat snakes. We will definitely be having a tiger rat episode within the next six months without any problem. I can tell you that. And then I do think since this is kind of just a fun – catching up episode we actually have a topic with our podcast that seems to be cursed and that is locality colubrids because we had an episode with chris montra montross sorry that we recorded 
and there ended up being a really bad echo, so we couldn't let that one rip. So Chris will definitely be coming back on. Uh, and then I recorded, like I said, in the in the void of time with Chris Painshab, and we talked like the whole conversation because it was just him and me was about why locality, and it was a great conversation. And I thought, well, this is fun. This is a good one. And then Eric uh, informed us that um, we only had 20 minutes of Chris. And that was like two hours and 15 minutes of goodness. So we will be bringing Chris back on. So we have at least two locality guests coming back on in the future. Uh, But, yeah, that's our cursed topic. So um, we will definitely be making sure that everything is lined up properly uh, whenever we go and return them back on. But I do want to thank both of them for giving us two hours of their lives, even though there's no proof they did. So <laughs> there you there you go. Um, my last little update, because I do have people that reach out periodically, and I've talked about it a lot. I feel like I've, I, I, I never stop giving updates on it, and I want to be done soon. Um, is the uh, the book, um, the Xenodontine book, or Dipsadded book, technically Xenodontines, the one the book that focuses on the falsies, the Barons, Racers, Museranas, Tricolors, all those guys. Uh, Russ and I had it. We thought it was done. I am very happy that Russ made the suggestion that we get a forward written, and he reached out to a couple people, and one of the people he reached out to was Mark O'Shea. And if you're a Hurt person that watched Animal Planet in the early 2000s, you would have watched Big Adventure. I remember this like it was yesterday, because Big Adventure was on right before Steve Irwin was on with Crocodile Hunter. And the running joke was that I wanted to watch Big Adventure, and then the crocodile would come on, and I would turn off the TV. So, I like Steve Irwin, don't hate me, but I liked O'Shea much more because he was a biologist doing what biologists do. He had whole episodes where he would say, we're looking for this viper, and if they didn't find it, it didn't show up in the episode because he refused to plant animals. So it was like real, legit herpetology. And then uh, O'Shea went on to write several books, one of them being 600 page monster that was published within the past couple years called the book of snakes which is just absolutely fantastic so when russ reached out to mark and mark agreed to write the forward i had a small stroke because it's really weird when one of your heroes agrees to help you uh and yes you know academics do that too i do this all the time i have my my nerdy people that i hold in high esteem um and so we gave it to mark and then mark proceeded to do something that turned out to be a godsend, which is he read it. (laughs) He read the whole book and then proceeded to inform me of all the mistakes I had made with the taxonomy. Um, Because he's a, he's, he is to snakes what I am to crayfish. And I desperately wanted somebody to review the book before it went to press, but we didn't know who would do that. And so uh, I don't want to give the impression like it was a steaming pile of crap. It was not a steaming pile of crap. Um, but there were definitely some corrections I needed to make, particularly with the genus Philodryas, if you know them. That's what the Baron's Racer's in. When I was writing the that chapter, a paper, I, I, I finished writing and a paper came out. And it redid all the taxonomy that I had just spent 
two months writing about and trying to get straight. And it's really, really technical gook, And I was trying to make it so that anybody could understand it. And so I made all those corrections. Took me a month. And no joke. I will remember this as long as I live. I, I found out there was a species of snake called Phyllodryas amaru. And uh, I realized I didn't write about that. How did I miss this one? And I did a search. And when I did the search, this paper popped up where it was in there. And it wasn't in this genus anymore. And I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What the hell? Because all the taxonomy was bass backwards from the way that I had written it. And then I looked at the paper and it was a preprint because the paper had been released literally that day. So the day that I had made all the corrections from the initial paper that obliterated everything, another paper came out and it challenged the previous paper. So the taxonomy for this chapter was like a hot mess. And Mark keeps a spreadsheet of every living snake, which is kind of insane because there's over 3,500 of them, and systematically went through and has done way more with the book than anyone should have. And he's essentially done a complete and total review of it before it would get reviewed, which if you're an author, you like live for this because had it gotten published, I know at least the Philodryas chapter would have been um, criticized. But now when it gets published, you know, it's bright, shiny and new and all the little kinks are out of it. So Russ and I had hoped to get the thing to the publisher the first week of December. Now it looks like it's going to get to the publisher first week of January. But we have a tentative goal of it being out and about so that when March Tinley rolls around, I can be at Tinley to sign copies of the damn book. And it has now become the damn book, not just the book, because... I thought that this thing was done. I thought it was done in May, and it wasn't. I thought it was done in August, and it wasn't. I thought it was done in October, and it wasn't. And that's uh, the reality of writing a book like this. So, um, yeah, I'm going to hopefully be done. I got the revisions to do, and then I'm going to keep everybody posted on it. But I am, I am so excited to see this thing go to print because with this revision, it, it, it went from like, being great to being fantastic now because it I don't know I'm just and it's just crazy that like one of my heroes when I was an undergrad like is helping me finish the book which is just it, if you do what we do it doesn't get any better than that and, he, and, and I have to say O'Shea had every right at times to be like what the hell are you doing he's been he's been a teacher the entire time and one of the things I think that's important is I'm a teacher but I never stop learning. So to actually be taught, I, I feel like I'm, I'm actually like really getting into uh, herpetology again, which is really, really cool. Because he said husbandry stuff's all spot on. The natural history stuff's all spot on. This systematic stuff needs some work. So that's what we've been working on. So that's the update on the book. I know I keep dangling it out in front of people and then it just doesn't get done. But please understand... If there's anyone on planet Earth that wants this thing done more than me, they just don't exist. Because uh, I, yeah, blood, sweat, and tears have gone into this thing now. So that's the update on the book. <clears throat> I felt the need to let everybody know that as well. So. <laughs> well, one of these days it will yeah. be published. <laughs> it will be printed by March of 2023. 
uh, mark my word. Because i got to get started on this Hognose Snake book. I have a grad student coming in uh, next semester, and his whole thesis is going to be on prairie hognose or western hognose snakes. And we're, I'm, I'm kind of using – I'm not using him. That sounded awful. Uh, <laughs> his, his research and it is going to be coupled with what I need to do to finish that book. So – Lots of updates on Nasicus. Next year's my heterodon year. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Good stuff. So, there's your update. I think, do you have anything else to add before we wrap this thing up? No, that's that's pretty much it. I think, um, you know, going forward in terms of episodes, releases, who we have on, um, I think we're both excited to have yes. Stan coming on here um, because he's been a long-awaited guest. Um, I know several people who listen to this have asked when is Stan coming on because <laughs> Clint made his debut before Stan. Um, there you go. But yeah, other than that, that's, that's really been about it. I mean, nothing else uh, too crazy or, um, you know, this is the last week I'm shipping. I, I would recommend anyone else that ships animals probably consider that too as well because this starts to become the black abyss yes. of uh, shipments in the FedEx system. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I really think that's kind of... Uh, that's it. The show. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, those of you who want to get a hold of me, um, you can look me up. I'm on Facebook, Zach Loafman, Instagram as Dr. Crawdad, and then just search Google and be, you can find my email if you're old school. Um, I love talking to people. I communicate with Facebook Messenger with my students hourly during the workday. So if you send a message there within two or three, I can't answer it immediately, but within two or three days of the message hitting, uh, I will definitely do everything in my power to make sure that I respond to you. And as we said earlier, you have potential guests that you'd like us to talk to. Uh, Send away. If you think that you have a topic that we would like to discuss, be your own advocate. Send it away. And I know we got at least six people. Um lined up because we had I I had um, well to throw some names out there Connor Wardle uh, agreed to come on but he couldn't do today and then Eric Westmoreland agreed to come on and he couldn't do today and then the other people um, need a little bit of technological help but we're going to give it to them so there you go so where do people go to find you Matt uh, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram uh, with Sarpamitra okay there we go. So, thanks for listening. We hope to get on a more regular schedule, hopefully. And with that, this has been another episode of Colubrid and Colubrid Radio. And Cujo, I think, is signing us off. So, there you go. 